Our final text this evening comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. This is God's Word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this powerful story of your son Jesus crucified on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would use me, your unworthy servant, to bring your truth to your people. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. On September 22nd, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued an executive order that was entitled the Emancipation Proclamation. This order was a decisive act that with the stroke of Lincoln's pen changed the legal status of more than three and a half million enslaved African Americans in the Confederate States. And on the surface, this proclamation appeared to accomplish much. And yet, as many of you are, I'm sure, aware of, there were numerous accounts of slavery continuing for years after this proclamation was made. And what was tragic about this is that in many cases, the slavery continued simply because the slaves were ill-informed, because they were purposefully blinded from the reality that they had been set free. These men, women, and children were kept ignorant of what had been done on their behalf. And therefore, they were powerless to experience the riches of its benefits. Brothers and sisters, on Good Friday, over 2,000 years ago, on that gruesome day, on that blood-stained hill, Jesus Christ made his own emancipation proclamation. Contrary to President Lincoln, who used 719 words in his proclamation, our Savior used but one, to telestai, meaning it is finished. To telestai, a word that I might add is in the perfect tense, a tense that is reserved for past events that have ongoing present tense power, meaning that whatever Jesus was declaring had happened in that moment would have ongoing implications for right now, for tomorrow, and forever. And so the first question that must be asked on this Good Friday is, do you know what it is that Jesus accomplished on that day? Do you know what Christ accomplished on the cross? Then the second, and maybe the even more important question is, are you living into the reality of that which Jesus accomplished on your behalf? Are you living into it, or are you, like so many of the slaves, blind to the reality of what has been done on your behalf and therefore failing to experience the riches of its benefits? 
Because church, don't miss this. If we don't know what was finished on Good Friday, we won't be able to truly rejoice on Easter morning. So tonight I want to show you three things that Jesus accomplished on that wonderful cross. First, the debt was paid. Second, a battle was won. And third, a heart was revealed. A debt was paid, a battle was won, and a heart was revealed. Let's begin. The first thing I want to highlight that Jesus accomplished on the cross is the payoff of a debt. And just in case you were wondering, that debt that he paid was yours. Now, wait a second. You might be saying, I I had no idea I was in debt. So I want to begin by unpacking this debt that all of us owe, and then we'll look at how Jesus paid it off. And in order to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And what we see here is this picture of God dwelling with man in intimate fellowship, face-to-face, perfect union and communion. And God's commentary on this union and communion was it it was very good. What we see here is, is God's design. This was his master plan for his creation to be one with him. Now I want you to look with me at the other end of the spectrum, the end of the story. The final chapter of this story comes in the last book of the Bible, which is called Revelation. And that's exactly what the book is. It's, a, it's God's revelation of how the grand story of humanity is going to end. A sneak peek, of, if you will, of the final chapter of the story of all mankind. And what's interesting is that the final chapter is eerily similar to the first chapter that we just saw in the garden. Listen to Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, the end is going to be like the beginning, but even better. God's people will dwell again with him face to face for all eternity. And so what these bookends reveal to us is both God's plan as well as his promise, his intention as well as his guarantee that those intentions will in fact come to fruition. And that all sounds well and good, but there's a problem. And that problem is Genesis 3. Because what we learn in Genesis 2 is that the perfect union and communion between God and man was conditional. It was conditional upon God's people obeying him. Obedience was the only vehicle by which this perfect union and communion could happen. In order to receive the blessing of union and communion with God, mankind was required to obey God's law. And the tragedy of Genesis 3 is that mankind failed to do that, failed to uphold its end of the the bargain. 
and our great, 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 great grandfather Adam and every single human after including you and me failed to walk in obedience to God, failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love countless other things instead, failed to love our neighbors as ourselves and instead are content with love of self. And just as God had warned in Genesis 2, this failure to obey, which we call sin, incurred a punishment. Genesis 2.17 says, If you eat of the tree that I forbade you to eat from, if you disobey me, you will die. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 6 when he says the wages of sin is death. See, the return on the investment of sin is death. And unfortunately, all of us have accounts that are in the red. We all have debts that we cannot pay off, debts of death. And what we see at the end of Genesis 2 is that the death that we have earned is not merely a physical death, but even scarier than that is the fact that the death involves an eternal separation from God. Which is why immediately after Adam and Eve sin, they're banished from the garden forbidden to experience that perfect union and communion with God anymore. But how can this be? We've seen the bookends. God's plan from the beginning was for mankind to experience perfect union and communion with him. And his promise in Revelation is that this perfect union and communion, this face-to-faceness will one day exist for all eternity. How is it possible in light of this unpayable debt that we all owe. And the good news is that the the whole rest of the Bible, all of the in-between text is God's grand and glorious answer to that question. How on earth can mankind get back into fellowship with God? What the scriptures reveal is that the way that is going to happen is through a substitute. The word substitute, as defined by Webster, is to put one in the place of another. You see, in order for mankind to be back in fellowship with God, we need a substitute to pay our debt. We see this idea littered throughout the Old Testament, but made most visible in Leviticus 16, around this special day that happens once a year called the Day of Atonement. What the text reveals is that every year the high priest would, verse 11, present a bull as a sin offering for himself, a substitute. And then, verse 15, the priest shall kill a goat as a sin offering for all of God's people. It says, verse 21, that the high priest shall lay both hands on the live goat and confess over it all the sins of the people of Israel. And he shall put them on the head of of the goat, a substitute. So important that we not miss this. You see, God, knowing that his people had this debt that they could not pay off, that they all deserved to die, allowed the goat to be a substitute, to die in their place. God, being the gracious Father that he is, allowed the blood of the goat to be the means whereby God's no to his people could become a yes. But here's the problem with the goat. See, the goat's blood had a shelf life. Its efficacy would would wear out over time. 
And God's yes to his people would become a no once again. And therefore, every year, another sacrifice had to be made. Which now finally brings us back to the cross. What we see in the Gospels and what is no doubt hinted at throughout the Old Testament as well is that the sacrificial system, the goat was, was never intended to last for forever. It was always meant to be simply a placeholder until the ultimate sacrifice came. But this time, the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, would not be an animal, but a man. And no ordinary man at that, but rather this man is both fully God and fully man. Therefore, again, and don't miss this, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate means whereby God's no to his people becomes a yes is through God's sacrifice of himself. And thanks be to God that this sacrifice has no shelf life, but rather, according to the scriptures, takes care of the entire debt once and for all. The author of Hebrews makes this plain in chapter 10 when he compares that day of atonement to that day on Calvary. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been clean, cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." But, it's the good news, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Church, this is why Jesus was able to proclaim on the cross, it is finished because his sacrifice was enough. It was enough for each and every one of us and enough for all of time. Now, church, it's it's vital that we know that on the cross our debt was paid, but knowing itself is not enough. We also must live into this reality because the truth is we often live otherwise. We live as though the work that Christ did on the cross wasn't enough that we're still in debt. And we do this in one of two ways. We either punish or perform. What do I mean? You see, whenever we sin, we rightly feel guilty. Guilt is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to reveal and convict sin. But the purpose of guilt is to bring us back to God, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to the cross where our sin was paid for. And yet how often does our guilt lead us inwardly instead? Lead us to wallow and to self-hatred. And then we begin to beat ourselves up like the monks in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, beating themselves over the head over and over again. We feel the need to punish ourselves in order to satisfy the debt of our sin. And yet sometimes we do the exact opposite. We feel the guilt of our sin and instead of 
punishing ourselves, we try to perform. We try to perform for God in order to hopefully tip the scales, to outweigh the the bad in our life with good, to, to present God with enough goodness to make him forget about all the badness. But either way, whether we punish ourselves or we perform, what we are doing is we're, we're telling Jesus that the horror that he went through on the cross wasn't enough. That he didn't suffer enough for us. And therefore, we need to add to his suffering that, that we need to do more in, for, in order for our sins to be forget, forgiven, in order for us to be made right with God. Church, it is finished You need not punish yourself anymore, nor do you need to strive to be good enough to make God forget about the bad. I'm reminded of the words from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress spoken to Christian when his burden of sin is finally lifted. says, if though my pardon has secured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First from, my bleeding surety, first from my bleeding surety's hand, and then again from mine. Church, Christ has done it once and for all. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus accomplished on the cross. You see, when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, not only was he declaring that our debt has been paid in full, but also he was proclaiming that a great battle had been won. I don't know about you, but I have always appreciated how the great allegorical literature of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien served to bring to mind this cosmic battle between good and evil that is happening all around us. How both the white witch and Sauron demand that, that we acknowledge that we face a real enemy in this life, an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy And when we remember that, it becomes clear that that when Jesus declared, it is finished, he was no doubt speaking to his and our enemy as well. Because as John rightly says in, in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I love how the directors of the Passion of the Christ film portray this in the movie you see, that at that decisive moment when Jesus is on the cross and he, and he breathes his last breath, they cut to a picture of Satan. And rather than rejoicing over the fact that the Son of God is dead, they show Satan screaming in agony. Why? Well, because the two greatest weapons of our enemy, of Satan, are sin and death. They are his two-edged sword, And the glory of the cross is that on Good Friday, Jesus took away Satan's sword. Because of what Christ has done, no longer can Satan use sin and death against us because our sin was dealt with once and for all. And because death for those who believe in him is to go home to be with God. Which is why Paul rejoices and goes so far as even to taunt our enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Once again, I want to push on you here, church. It's one thing to know that on the cross, Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan, but it's another thing entirely to live into that reality. 
And no doubt this very moment that we are sitting in is testing our ability to live into this reality. Amen? Because death is all around us. And it appears as though Satan and not Aslan is on the move. But now more than ever, we must cling to the reality that the battle has been won. And may that give us boldness not to cower from, but push back against the forces of darkness. To not allow COVID-19 to hold us down, but rather for this to be the time that the church rises up, waving the victory banner. Knowing that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is no fear in death. And may that reality not compel us to be reckless and to further spread this disease, but rather may it cause us to be hopeful and to share that hope with all around us. Because sin and death and Satan have been defeated because it is finished. Which brings us to our third and final thing that Jesus accomplished on that Good Friday over 2,000 years ago. When Jesus proclaimed that it is finished, not only was he declaring that a debt had been paid and not only was he declaring that a battle had been won, but also that a heart had been fully revealed. See, there's great danger in looking at the cross merely transactionally. (laughs) To think of it as a math equation of, of sorts. I had a debt. I needed it to be taken care of. Jesus took care of it. End of story. But the problem with that transactional view is it entirely misses the heart behind it all. The heart that is most poignantly portrayed on the cross. You see, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1 that that God chose you and me before the foundation of the world. That in love he predestined us for adoption. And it's because of that love that Paul says in Romans 8 that God did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us all, for you and for me. Clearly a, a substitute was needed and God knew that No ordinary substitute would do. He knew that it would have to be his one and only son. Church, there's nothing in this world that would cause me to put my only son through the agony and suffering that Christ went through. There's nothing that I love that much. But the glorious mystery of our God is that he loves you and he loves me that much. But it's not just the Father's love that's on display on the cross. It's also the Son's. Many read the Passion story as as just another example of social injustice, of, of the people in power oppressing the weak. And yet that's a far cry from what actually happened that day on Calvary. We must remember that Jesus' life was not taken from him, but rather he gave it up willingly. Jesus made this crystal clear long before his crucifixion in John chapter 10. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Do you understand the magnitude of that statement? Jesus Jesus willingly underwent all that suffering for you. He volunteered to be the substitute to bear the penalty that you and I deserve. And and Galatians 2 tells us that he did that because he loves us, because he loves you. 
as Charles Spurgeon once said, on the cross, Jesus Christ, completely embodying perfect love, looked down at the people he was dying for, completely embodying the opposite, and he stayed. Church, I hope and pray that on this Good Friday, that this love that God has for you is not something that you are simply aware of, but rather that it's something that you are truly living into, something that grips your heart and is changing you from the inside out. You see, because Jamie Smith is right, we are what we love. We live for that which our hearts desire the most. And therefore, the only way to be transformed in this life is for our affections to change. As Cynthia Heimel says, this affection change only happens through the expulsive power of a new affection. What she's saying is that true transformation happens only when we discover something that is more beautiful, that is more glorious, that is more noble, that is more satisfying than what we presently adore. And when that happens, that, that more beautiful something dislodges that which we are living for, and it places itself in the center of our hearts. Church, I hope and pray that the heart of God, his love for you, his reckless, never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love that is most gloriously revealed on the cross is doing that for you. That it is winning your heart and transforming your life. On September 22, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation that in many ways failed to deliver on the freedom that it promised. And yet on this holiest of weeks, I hope and pray that you would truly believe and rejoice in the fact that when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, he did not fail to deliver on that which he promised. But on that day, your debt was paid once and for all, and a great battle was won, and God's heart for you was revealed in the grandest possible way. And would those realities grip you in your innermost being and cause you to love God more and to live for him more each and every day? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would allow us to see and understand that which Christ accomplished through his shed blood on the cross that we would fully know in the depths of our being that our debt has been paid, that sin and death and Satan have been defeated, and that your love for us is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. God, would you drive those truths deeper into our hearts? Would they transform the way we live? I pray these things in Jesus' name.